It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Welcome to the show. Yeah, it's Thursday. It's August 20th in this year of our COVID and uh, thanks so much for making me part of your day. I appreciate it. I appreciate patrons to the program as well, like Joseph and Dan, Brian, John, Robbie and Janet, Sarah and Frank, Karen and Manuel and Jeff and Nicole and Chris. Thanks so much. I couldn't do the program without y'all. I am truly indebted for your uh, support. Um, we're going to talk with Andy Jackson, Dr. Andy Jackson from the North Carolina, sorry, from the Civitas Institute, ncivitas.org. And about a couple different things. Uh, he's got a complaint that he has filed against the North Carolina Association of Educators Political Action Committee. There is also a lawsuit filed by the ACLU that says asking people to get a witness to the uh, absentee ballot vote is, uh, you know, when you're filling out your absentee ballot, that getting a witness disenfranchises people. So uh, we'll discuss that, as well as this idea to allow uh, people who are on parole and probation to also have their voting rights restored. Andy Jackson's not so much a fan of that. Now, me, on the other hand, I am a huge fan of Mattress Man. I bought my mattress uh, from Mattress Man going on probably eight years, nine years ago now. Um, and it's a memory foam mattress. Christy and I love the mattress. It's the nicest mattress we've ever owned. You can get one too at Mattress Man. Great mattresses for reasonable prices. And they got great deals on them too, like the triple zero deal. Zero down, zero interest for two years, zero payments for 90 days. You basically get a mattress for free for three months. It's fantastic. They also have a $400 for a queen size gel memory foam mattress and a free bedding bundle that includes sheets, protectors, and pillows with the purchase of select mattresses. They are also your source for the Biltmore collection. These are the mattresses that are at the hotel and the inn at the Biltmore, uh, and they're made by Restonic in Fayetteville. Mattress Man is also your source for Nature's Spa. This is the newest brand of mattress by Paramount Sleep. Uh, it's a series of hybrid mattresses. It's sold through Bloomingdale's, you know, the high-end department store, and it's featured at Blackberry Farm in Tennessee. Okay, so whatever mattress you are looking for, whether it's an inner spring, um, a pocketed spring, a memory foam, a pillow top, whatever you're looking for, let the sleep consultants at Mattress Man hook you up. They, they know sleep. Okay, they're just they basically sleep all the time. So they're experts at it. No, I'm kidding. But they they go through six weeks of training, right? Extensive training because how people sleep, uh, like the position that you sleep in, it's going to require different types of mattresses and they can help you find the right one for you. Five star local delivery service. They ship nationwide and uh, they have a 120 day comfort guarantee. You, you can't lose here. Plus, with all the deals, experience the difference at Mattress Man Buy local. Sleep better, mattressmanstores.com. Earlier this week, the Civitas Institute filed a campaign finance complaint with the North Carolina State Board of Elections against the North Carolina Association of Educators Political Action Committee, the NCAE PAC. 
Uh, joining me now is Dr. Andy Jackson. He is the Elections Policy Analyst at the Civitas Institute, the website ncivitas.org. Uh, Andy, welcome back to the show. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Certainly. So why are you picking on the teachers, man? What's up with that? Why are you going after? No, what, what is the, uh, so what is the nature of the complaint? And this is you filing this complaint, right? Yeah, it is my name on the complaint. Um, it's a couple things. First of all, we have to know that it's not the teachers. There, there's, I think, less than one out of five teachers are contributors to the NCAE. Um, this is their political action committee. We were actually doing some research on the political activities because the leadership of the NCAE is politically go, moved further to the left. And we were you know, doing some research, seeing what they're about. And part of that research was just seeing, well, who are they giving their political money to? Um, and as we were looking at this, this wasn't like I was doing like uh, and others were doing deep detective work. It's right there on the campaign finance page at the State Board of Elections. And we found out that the uh, NCAE PAC uh, has made uh, contributions by their own records, submitted to the state, uh, has made excess contributions to two different campaigns. Uh, one, uh, Dan Blue, who is a state senator in Wake County, and one for Governor Roy Cooper's campaign. So the NCAE PAC, second quarter campaign contributions, going to these two candidates, uh, and they're one's a little bit more straightforward than the other, right? So let's take the easier one. This is Dan Blue, and mm-hmm. there were... Uh, was uh, donations $12,600 in contributions uh, to his re-election committee, right? I guess Citizens for right. Dan Blue. Um, yes. Was that was that all at once? Was that uh, 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 several contributions over a period of time? And how did that run afoul of the law? Well, you are allowed to donate under North Carolina law, and this changes. They, ha- they have inflation factored into this. But for 2020, under North Carolina law, you're allowed to donate $5,400 per election. Um, and, and that's, you know, per election in each cycle. So we're in the 2020 cycle. Uh, if you have, for example, a primary and then you have a general election, the maximum you can donate during that election cycle is $10,800. If you have a second primary, people can donate even more. Um, but Dan Boo didn't have a second primary, so the maximum any group can contribute to his campaign is $10,800. And according to the paperwork filed with the State Board of Elections, the NCAE PAC has contributed uh, $12,600. So that is a contribution, $800 in excess of the legal limit. And so that's the straightforward one. The governor's campaign also went over the limit what what happened with that one yeah that one is just plain weird i i it is hard to figure out what was going on in their heads when they were doing the paperwork on this one first of all uh as of february 25th uh of this year the ncae pack reported that they had made an aggregate uh contributions to roy cooper's campaign which is called cooper for north carolina of six thousand four hundred dollars so very straightforward. That's much less than the $10,800 limit. Uh, However, they also made a $5,400 contribution to Cooper for Attorney General. Uh, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. (laughs) Something's wrong. (laughs) What is... He's not the Attorney General anymore. He's not the Attorney General. He hasn't run for Attorney General since 2012. Um... (laughs) But here's the thing. Um, 
uh, I'll give you kind of an analogy on this one. Uh, and I'm, I'll pick on Muhammad Ali uh, because we don't have to get into gender identification things. <laughs> but if somebody changes their name, like you think of the most famous person that's changed his name, and Muhammad Ali certainly would be in the top 10. Mm-hmm. Like say, but you say if Cassius Clay got a parking ticket, and then he changed his name, Muhammad Ali. Well, look, this this parking ticket was issued to Cassius Clay. It has nothing to do with me. No, they're the same person. Mm-hmm. Um, legally in North Carolina, it's the same thing here. Um, Roy Cooper's committee, he's had the same committee uh, since he's been running for statewide office. Um, and only thing they did was change the name. And we've got the paperwork on that. That's on file with the State Board of Elections. So this wasn't, when I first saw this, I thought, well, maybe they were retiring some old campaign debt. I looked, there's no, you know, amended forms from any of these old Cooper campaigns on file as of yet. Um, And so they have the exact same uh, ID. Uh, The State Board of Elections puts an ID number on every campaign committee. And so Cooper for Attorney General, they changed their name to Cooper for North Carolina in 2013 when he started thinking about uh, seeking a higher office, you know, moving up the ladder. Um, but it's the same campaign committee. So a donation to Cooper for Attorney General is a donation to Cooper for North Carolina. And so those donations altogether exceed the legal limit by $1,000. Is there any indication that this was just a mistake that I, I don't know, or or maybe there are other donations that are going to this uh, Cooper for Attorney General account, but it's actually going to Cooper. Have I mean, is this is this occurring beyond just what NCAE PAC is doing? Well, this is the only thing we know um, that what they have on file is in excess. So we're we're sticking we're sticking to that on the complaint because that's the only thing that we know for sure that according to the records on file state board of elections they have exceeded the legal limit on campaign contributions um when if people are going to make donations uh illegally or make donations in excess generally they're not going to advertise that so certainly somebody made a mistake at the ncae pack the question is what is the nature of the mistake uh did they just do the paperwork wrong they really they never really donated to cooper for attorney general um we don't know that um, were they trying to cover up excess donations or filter them through another source and they just failed to do the cover-up properly? We don't know that. Uh, this is the reason that we issued the complaint to the State Board of Elections so that they can go ahead and investigate, talk to the treasurer of the NCAE PAC, and get to the bottom of this. And, and hopefully we'll be able to find out the results of this really soon. I mean, if we can be as generous as possible and just say, you know, people make mistakes and maybe they just put the wrong numbers in. But the whole thing with the Cooper for attorney general is just so weird. It's hard to, to yeah. just think that was just, you know, a num- you know, a number put, you know, typed in incorrectly. Yeah. Unless there's some sort of uh, autofill form, you know, from some previous years and it's going off of that committee ID number. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, in the press release that Civitas issued on this, it says the NCAE continues to bleed members as they ramp up their politically alienating policy agenda that prioritizes politics over content, the pursuit of coercive, freedom-squashing regulations, and decalogues over the needs of young children and hardworking teachers. I only read that because I have never heard the word decalogues before, so I actually had to go look it up. (laughs) Honestly, I haven't either. I didn't write the press release, but (laughs) it sounds really ominous. It does. And it's like, what is a decalogue? It is a 
according to the definition in the dictionary, basic set of rules carrying binding authority. The most Ooh. famous, if you capitalize Decalogue, is the Ten Commandments. So we are all now smarter for having read the Civitas press release. Um, I don't know. I'm just a wordsmith. And so when I come across a word like that, it's like, I might try to use that. I might uh, take that out and walk it around a little bit in the future. So uh, you also had a piece. Um, oh, sorry. Is there anything else on, on this topic before I shift well, gears to the ACLU? Well, since you brought up this, this is actually speaking to the basics with the uh, uh, North Carolina Association of Educators. They're in a bit of a, of, uh, a vicious spiral. They're bleeding off members. Uh, they've lost an estimated 33,000 members over the past couple of years. Uh, and they're becoming more radical because the people that are sticking around are more likely to support the same kind of you know, left turn that, that mm -hmm. the leadership has taken. So we're probably going to see a lot more from the NCAE on this front and NCAE PAC on this. And I think this is maybe just indicative of where they're going. And they do have, and I would submit an outsized voice that their their ability to amplify their message through the media and the Democratic Party. Um, I would, I don't think it's it's actually commensurate with their actual levels of membership anymore. I think maybe in the past uh, they they had more of I don't know influence, actual influence. Now it seems like they just get a lot of coverage and they get a lot of speaking time. And I'm not sure if they actually have a lot of membership to back that up. Yeah. And it's increasingly becoming uh, that way. Yeah. Uh, because, well, the last, what was it? The last election cycle that they had for their union, sorry, association, <laughs> uh, leadership posts, the progressive caucus of the, was it organized 2020 caucus uh, out of mm -hmm. the, in the union, they, all of those people won those, leadership seats um and so yeah the the ones that have been organizing the the strikes and the the rallies and stuff they're now in charge of the entire union so sorry association and uh speaking of associations here's an association you and old grouch's military surplus you need to make this happen Go to Old Grouch's Military Surplus. He is open. Shop is open Monday through Saturday in downtown Clyde. He has an expanded line of first aid kits and medical supplies for all kinds of emergencies. And uh, he's got body armor, all kinds of body armor made to NATO specifications. These are for in-store or over-the-phone purchases only. He's got face masks that are made out of military parachutes, and these are made by a local family, a uh, disabled veteran, and his family. They make these parachutes. So they're lightweight. They're soft. They use the parachute cords for the... Uh, for the bands and stuff. It's pretty cool. Uh, they, he also has steel gas cans, the pre-ban kind, and he'll paint them, actually, for a nominal fee for you. Or if you want the old original look, you can just keep them as is. Uh, he has, all obviously, tons of real U.S. military surplus, has for more than three decades, Old Grouch's military surplus on Main Street in downtown Clyde, and uh, it's across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. Seriously. And at oldgrouch.com. My guest is Dr. Andy Jackson, the elections policy analyst at the Civitas Institute. Um, so you had a piece also called The Lie at the Heart of the ACLU's Absentee Voting Lawsuit. Um, the ACLU is making an argument that on North Carolina's absentee ballots that you have to have the witness, you have to have two witnesses um, see you sign the, the, the ballot or, or fill out the ballot 
and that this the ACLU argument is that that requirement threatens to disenfranchise countless North Carolinians. They don't, I don't think, give us a count. Maybe you can tell me. Uh, but they say that this will disenfranchise countless North Carolinians without serving any valid government interest that could conceivably warrant such a significant incursion on citizens' right to vote. So, uh, let's go over. What is this argument's problems uh, that you see? Well, well, it centers, centers on this. I mean, is there any valid government interest in having a witness requirement for ballots? Um, and I should point out that the, in recent legislation passed this year, H. 1169, uh, just for the 2020 election, they have reduced that from two witnesses down to one. Um, there are some problems with that because two witnesses are better than one, and I've, I've written on that before. We could talk about it later if you wish. Sure. But um, there is certainly a, a valid government interest in, in having witnesses for ballot for a couple of reasons. The biggest one, of course, is that it helps provide evidence in cases of alleged absentee ballot fraud. And we just saw this with the recent ninth district hearings. Um, the uh, State Board of Elections was able to collect, they were able to collect these absentee uh, ba ballot witness signatures. They're able to see who got those, who signed those, because almost invariably the people who sign on as witnesses in instances of absentee ballot harvesting are the people that signed as witnesses. So they were able to go back and find out who were these people were Lisa Britt, who was uh, a person who worked uh, for McCray Dallas, for example, you know, what ballots had she signed? Had those been turned in? Um, had she collected those from people's homes, which is illegal under North Carolina law? That was an important factor. And if you go back and look at the transcripts, like I did, it, it can be tedious looking at transcripts <laughs> of the hearings. One of the first things they do is, is they say, do you, you know, was this your uh, signature on here? Do you deny that this is your signature? Uh, it's it's kind of like, you know, you get things down in writing. Um, you know, it's, it, nobody would like say, give you a bank loan or a car loan without your signature to verify, hey, you're you and you're taking this thing out. And this is what they're doing here. It's a verification of the people who, who witnessed the ballot. So one, that person can vouch that the person who filled out the ballot is actually the voter. Mm -hmm. And if we have suspected cases of absentee ballot fraud, ballot harvesting, we can go back, look at those witness uh, signatures, and it helps investigators get to the bottom of it. So this is preserving uh, sound elections and preserving our right to vote by preventing people from taking our ballots is certainly a valid government interest. And didn't, I'm, maybe I'm wrong on this, I'm, I'm, and my recollection is faulty, but I thought that they did the two ballot or the two witness signatures pretty recently. Didn't they add that pretty recently? Um, I'm trying to think. I want to say it was back in the '90s, but don't okay. quote me on that. Um, so they've, but they've, they've now dialed that back down to one, just for this election. Just for, and this is COVID related. I'm assuming. Yes. And so what's the? Yep. So what's the? What's your problem with that? Well, my my basic problem with that is uh, two is better than one. Uh, I know it's a really basic argument, <laughs> but when you have absentee ballot, uh, uh, when you have ballot harvesting operations. And they actually talk about this uh, when you read this in the transcripts. When you have uh, ballot harvesting operations and you require two people to sign it, that means that the ballot harvesting operations must get bigger. Uh, and you know, they have to get more workers to sign these things. They have to rotate out the team so you don't have the same two people uh, uh, 
signing, you know, about, you know, uh, every ballot, ballot container, <laughs> you know, not the ballots, but the ballot container envelopes. Right. Because if you have the same two people and actually, if you look at the transcripts from the hearing, uh, McCray Dallas had to do that. He had to start telling uh, uh, Lisa Britt, I, I keyed in on her testimony mm -hmm. and this other person, his last name is Singletary. He had to basically get the, get those two to stop working together because they kept showing up, uh, you know, for for container envelope after container envelope. Uh, on this and he knew that well that would raise suspicions if you have the same two people and that is how uh, and this has been identified by uh, uh, Gary Bartlett who used to be the executive director of the North Carolina State Board of Elections he identified this as a reoccurring pattern you have two people because it you, know, you had to have the two witnesses mm -hmm. they would work together they get people to sign up uh, request absentee ballots and once the ballots come in uh, they go back to the house witness it and collect it so this is a this is a reoccurring pattern with ballot harvesting operations that have occurred in North Carolina, and having the witness requirement allows for officials to be better able to identify that. And having two just makes it that much harder for the ballot harvesters to successfully conduct an operation. I also saw uh, one of the, one of the arguments that you noted here is uh, one of the problems that they have that the ACLU lawsuit has is that they couldn't even find anybody. <laughs> that, that that was aggrieved, right? They couldn't find a damaged party, basically, uh, to to make this case that I couldn't find two people, so you disenfranchised me. And it seems to me like that should sort of lay bare the lie. Yeah, it, it does, because it's odd. I mean, you know, and obviously they wrote this in the best possible light as they could, and they had three plaintiffs and you know this is an ACLU operation but they have to have aggrieved parties in order to have standing for the lawsuit mm -hmm. but three out of the four people said that they went out <laughs> they you know they said they limited when they went out and everything but they went out they you know they did their shopping and other activities uh, they had one person who said they were diligent in isolation but they didn't specify like were they totally isolated all the time and so if you're in that situation you know you can get a witness, especially now that this that the uh, you know the, we've reduced it down to one just for this year, um, you know if you can go out and I know people hate to hear this sometimes, but it's true. If you can go out for other things, you can go out for voting, uh, and certainly uh, you can make an arrangement to find somebody that you'd be comfortable being a witness uh, for your ballot. Now, does the witness have to watch you check? all of the boxes or fill out the ballot or just that they have to watch you sign it all right they're actually okay here here's the thing they're supposed to be close enough to know that you're the one filling it out okay but they're actually not supposed to watch you actually check the box <laughs> i mean because you know you're supposed to have a private ballot right, right. So, they could, so somebody could be 20 feet from you and, the, and you hold up your ballot hey this is my ballot i'm filling it out now and then you could you know put it on your, you know, as long like you could be standing inside your door, then you could set it down on the porch and they could step up on the porch and sign it. Mm -hmm. I mean, as long as they know that you're the person that filled out the ballot. Um, and so, yeah, they don't actually, they're, they're not supposed to check, see, check the boxes. Okay. My guest is Dr. Andy Jackson from the Civitas Institute. Now, if you are checking boxes on website development and you don't know what you're doing, then you need Schaefer Smith from Schaefer Smith Design. You know how to run your business, you know your business, right? But you probably don't know a lot about website design and maintenance, but Schaefer Smith does. Great design can solve a lot of your site's problems, 
professional services, corporate, small businesses, and entrepreneurs, Schaefer Smith can help you with graphics and photos, an online store, search engine optimization, website maintenance and security. He does logos. He did mine. He'll do yours. It's a great process, too. He's a great guy to work with. SchaeferSmith.com and get the most out of your website. That's SchaeferSmith.com. Dr. Andy Jackson, the elections policy analyst at the Civitas Institute. Let's talk absentee ballots. These are not the same things as mail-in ballots, the universal mail-in voting, right, that that everyone's uh, all, uh, that they're lobbying for, the Democrats are lobbying to enact, right? Right. I mean, this is a, a separate system. And, and folks will say, hey, they're the same thing. In North Carolina, they're not. And one thing we have to remember is terminology is kind of important. Because yes. technically speaking, what we call early voting is, you know, in-person absentee. <laughs> so... Uh, it's another form of absentee because you're not going to be present on election day. But in North Carolina, we have absentee voting, which in our terms means you have to request the ballot and then they send the ballot to you. In universal mail, they just send the ballots out to every registered or every active registered, depending on local laws. Um, and so that's a, that's a different system uh, in place. Now, do the ballots go through the mail? Yes, they do. But it does require that that extra step and extra verification when you have an absentee system rather than a straight up universal mail system. One of the other lawsuits, there are so many uh, regarding North Carolina voting rules, or dare I call them decalogues. Um, this is on the felons voting. And Daryl Atkinson is a lawyer leading the lawsuit. He is co-director of the Durham based group Forward Justice and his mission is to get felons the ability to vote. And uh, Will Duran at the News and Observer wrote a story about this the other day, and you were quoted in it. But I guess this was from something that you had written a while back on this topic. Yes, it was. I actually wrote it when they first introduced the lawsuit back um, uh, in November. Uh, it's, that's this is pretty. This one's been grinding along pretty slowly, uh, and it's interesting that it's coming up now, right at this time. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I, yeah, I, almost a little too too coincidental that just as like right now, as everyone's all interested in ref, uh, criminal justice reform, here comes the lawsuit. Yeah. Yes, and the judges are going to try to uh, get this thing adjudicated apparently before mail ballots go out on September fourth. So, so it's suddenly going to move very quickly. Right now. All of it, yeah, right. Exactly. So what is the um, what is the current law? And you're actually it sounds like you're on the same side of this as the North Carolina Attorney General, Josh Stein, a Democrat. Well, he, you know, he's supposed to defend North Carolina law. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. And sometimes and, and, and when he they wants have to occasionally. <laughs> yeah. And, and well, there are occasionally occasional times where sometimes you don't want the attorney general to be representing you. And you, you want to get like outside party to come in. And that happens sometimes. Um, but this this is a fairly straightforward uh, case in North Carolina. Um, once a person has completed their sentence, uh, their voting rights are automatically restored. Uh, it used to be that you had to go through a special you know, process asking uh, a judge or whatnot to get reinstated, but that was changed back in the 1970s, I believe, to the, the current form that we have. Um, now, your sentence includes your whole sentence, and that also includes uh, things like parole. So if you're on probation or you're on parole, then your voting rights are taken away uh, during that period, not just the time when you're actually physically in jail. Because you're, you're still 
kind of an institutional person at that point. You, you don't really have the kind of freedoms that we have. You still have to you know, go to your parole officer. You have a lot of restrictions on where you can go, what you can do. Um, and so you, you, you know, there's a whole host of things that people that are convicted felons still serving out their sentence have to go through. And one of those is still not having uh, their right to vote restored. This is what got the former mayor of Charlotte in extra trouble after he was, uh, I think, he did he plead guilty? I think he pleaded guilty. Um, or maybe he was found guilty, I forget. But before he actually went to, went to prison to serve his term, he voted. And he got in more trouble for that. Um, for very, for very much the same reason that you just outlined, because he he had been sentenced and he had not fulfilled uh, the term of his sentence. So it seems pretty straightforward. But um, there was a ruling that was cited by this lawyer uh, about the free elections provision that the North Carolina Constitution uh, has, and it was used to strike down what the uh, the gerrymandering stuff. And uh, so now it looks like they're going to try to use that ruling. Uh, which he says the gerrymandering lawsuits breathed new life into the state constitution. <laughs> so it's a, <laughs> it's a living, breathing document too. And uh, so like that's that, that ruling is now going to be used to help this guy advance this cause. It seems like. It is because the, the traditional understanding of that clause, the, the free elections clause in the North Carolina constitution has been that it does it. So people cannot be compelled to vote for a certain party. That you know, if you have a voting choice, you're actually able to freely vote your choice. Um, and this comes from a couple of other uh, relatively obscure rulings that, uh, where they try to say if you wanted to change your party registration, you have to promise to vote to pe- for people of that party. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, no, North Carolina elections are free. You don't have to vote for people of your that. party. Right. <laughs> right. But so this this was that ruling was an expansion of that. Uh, because they were basically arguing that if you were in a uh, district that was drawn for the partisan benefit of one party and you're a member of the other party, then you're not truly free. Um, So this is not exactly the same thing here because nobody's going to be compelled to vote a certain way. You either have the franchise or you do not. Um, And so that clause doesn't really apply here. And I don't think they're going to you know, be able to get too far off that, especially because, uh, you know, felon disenfranchisement is specified in the North Carolina Constitution. Uh, the, the, the General Assembly is tasked with setting up the rules and regulations that would allow people to have their right to vote reinstated. And so it's well within the purview of the General Assembly to decide what those conditions are. Uh, and, and so because, because they have kind of that that safe harbor on setting those rules, it's going to be really hard for anybody to successfully argue that the General Assembly uh, doesn't have uh, you know, within their power to set that. Dr. Andy Jackson is an elections policy analyst at the Civitas Institute. You can read his work at ncivitas.org. Uh, Andy, always good to talk with you, sir. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. All right. Always a pleasure. All right, a question for you business owners. How are you cleaning and sanitizing your place to ensure workers and customers are safe? Uh, It's a lot of work, I know. But I have a solution for you. It's the Karcher Misting System with Vital Oxide Disinfectant. And General Equipment Rental in Weaverville is your source. 
Realtors, property and apartment managers, venue operators, places of worship, schools, childcare facilities, homeowners, Airbnb owners, you can all use the Karcher misting system with Vital Oxide disinfectant. It is at General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. The Vital Oxide disinfectant is safe for kids, it's safe for pets and food contact surfaces. This is an all-in-one, hospital-grade, EPA-approved germicidal disinfectant sanitizer and deodorizer. I don't think there's anything it can't kill, except maybe me. Um, 99.9, it does kill 99.9% of infection-causing bacteria and viruses, so I'm safe. Uh, it also can get rid of your mold, mildew, and fungi problems, unless that fungi happens to be me. Then uh, it can get rid of all of that stuff for you. One treatment last seven to 10 days. So you're not constantly having to go and clean everything. All you have to do is, is spot clean the high traffic areas. It's super easy to use Four independent wheels. It's cordless. You roll it around, you spray everything down and you don't have to rinse anything afterwards. It's non-toxic, hypoallergenic, odorless, colorless, and 100% biodegradable. Go get yourself the Karcher Mister. Uh, it is at General Equipment Rental in Weaverville which is at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road. Family-owned and operated for three generations, meeting all of your equipment rental needs. Go to generalrents.com slash Pete and get a coupon for two free cloth face coverings. General Equipment Rental in Weaverville, generalrents.com. Think outside your toolbox. So Civitas also released a poll the other day, and I thought this was really, really interesting. Um, and it's why you're seeing a lot of the law and order messaging around political campaigns. I mean, aside from the fact that, like, there's a complete insurrection going on in our country. I mean, it's it hasn't it hasn't turned full out hot war level insurrection, but that's what's occurring. I'm convinced. Um, and I think any honest assessment of what's going on uh, would lead a rational observer to that same conclusion that there is an element in the society that is mounting an insurrection. I don't know who they all are. I can just see that this is occurring. Just my opinion. So the latest Civitas poll reveals that crime is shaping up to be a significant issue. In the state, North Carolina, 65% believe there is more crime in North Carolina than six months ago. And another 23% are not really sure. So, what is that? 88%? 60 so 2 out of 3 say more crime now and the and, and another quarter are like, yeah, I'm not really sure. 12% believe there's less crime. That's it. Since the early 1990s, crime is down from its peak in America. I have said this for years. A lot of people think, "Oh, you know, things are getting worse." And for the most part, they haven't over the last 30 years, 40 years. They they ha it, it hasn't. It's gotten safer. However, not so much in the last year or so. Homicide is increasing dramatically in a lot of urban areas. Violent crime, according to Civitas, has already surged by nearly 20% from 2018 to 2019 in Charlotte. The homicide rate has doubled in the past six years there. It's up over 11% since 2019. John Hood at the John Locke Foundation has pointed out in the Carolina Journal that homicides are up 17% in Winston-Salem since last year, and they have tripled in Durham. Of course, nationally, there are way worse examples than North Carolina's urban sectors. Yet shootings in New York City at this time, number 888. 888 shootings in New York City. At the same point last year, they had half that, 488. Okay, so here's the question Civitas went to the, um, uh, took to the public with their poll. 
How important are the issues of crime and public safety to you when considering your vote in this fall's elections? Very important came out number one. So 69% of respondents said crime and public safety are very important issues when they vote. Another 18% said these issues are somewhat important. So when you add those two numbers to get uh, together, you get 87% saying it's very important or somewhat important, which means only 11% say it's not. Who do you think wins that argument? In the court of public opinion, when you go to the voting booth, who's going to win that argument? Um, free piece of advice for all state lawmakers, uh, or candidates, I should say, state and local candidates. I guess even the the national ones, but this really is a state and local matter. It really is. As much as a lot of the left wants to make this about Donald Trump, Donald Trump is is not the cause for Antifa. Donald Trump is not the cause for Black Lives Matter, right? Donald Trump is not the cause for the rioting and the looting. And he's darn sure not the cause for the lack of response that Democratic lawmakers and uh, government officials uh, have shown us, or haven't shown us, I guess. I, the, the local response, that is all about local leadership. And the places where you're seeing the worst violence occur are the places that have been run by one particular political party for a very long time. Now, do you keep voting for them? I'm talking about you know people who vote Democrat, for years and years and years, they are Democrats, and they could never bring themselves to vote for Republicans. Okay, well then, this is what you voted for. And uh, I, you know, I've seen a lot of these, uh, I mean, heck, the Republican Party is putting up billboards, you know, in Texas saying, if you're coming to our state from California, leave your politics there. Don't turn us into what you fled. Well, they will, because they're going to come and they're going to be voting the same way because they're not going to see the ramifications. So there are some people that are like, we don't want you coming here. You need to stay in California and you need to lie in the bed, lie or lay. I never remember which one to use. You need to sleep in the bed that you made. And I mean, obviously we can't stop people from, (laughs) from relocating. Um, But by the way, if you are thinking about relocating Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, that's who Christy and I are using. I, I told everybody, She's the only agent that I would use if I'm buying or selling a house. Well, Christy and I are buying a house, and I'm using Rowena Patton and her team. And I called 333-4483. I went to their website, mountainhomehunt.com, signed up for all of my alerts and such. And uh, she's going to find us a house. She's already going to work for us. She's like, I had questions that uh, I knew to ask. And because I've bought, you know, two houses before. Christy has bought two houses as well. Um sold three because I had one, she had one, then we bought one together. And so, yeah, we've sold all of these houses, bought and sold. And, uh, but there are questions that I don't even know. I didn't even know I needed to ask. And Rowena knows them. Uh, so put her and her team to work for you. 333-4483 mountainhomehunt.com and start packing. So, uh, 85% of North Carolinians have an overall favorable view of their police departments and 70% have a negative view of the call to defund police. This is something that needs to break through to the Asheville city council and all city, you know, Charlotte city council, Durham city council. You know, 
you are being misled. You are listening to a radical element of insurrectionists. They're not anarchists. They're temporary anarchists. They only want no government for a brief period of time, just long enough to create the chaos so people will then agree to put them in power so they stop their violence. And then once they get into power, then it's socialism. You're, you never, you ever, like, you never see these anarchists. They're not anarcho-capitalists. Right? Anarcho-capitalists? I don't know how you pronounce it. Right? These, like, uber-libertarian people that become anarchy or anarchist slash capitalist, right? That's not who's doing the rioting and the looting and such. These are collectivists, Marxists. That's who's doing this. We all know this. This is this is only news to the news media, okay? Um, so the vast majority of people, though, have a favorable view of their police departments. 85% of North Carolinians, 70% have a negative view of the call to defund police. So when you have elected officials that are that are listening to this radical mob because they think this is where the will of the people are. They do not represent the will of the people. At the same time, 58% have a favorable view of the term Black Lives Matter. So one can at least assume there is widespread support for some police and criminal justice reforms. And I think that's the correct interpretation of this dichotomy. Right? I think this is accurate. That you have... 58% 58% that, that say, I got a, the term Black Lives Matter, I, I'm, I'm favorable towards that. Now, how much of that is like they feel like they need to say they're favorable to it? But honestly, it's like, uh, I love babies and puppies. That's the name of my organization, right? Well, who's going to object to that? Uh, say it. You have to say it, right? <laughs> but the organization Black Lives Matter, they're Marxists. They're Marxists. That's why they're in bed with Antifa. Um. Meanwhile, the violence in downtown Portland has escalated, uh, with one reporter calling it a war zone, thanks to the unchecked mob showing up amid the global pandemic. Several companies now have decided to move out of downtown or have their employees all work from home. This is according to a post by Mary Chastain at Legal Insurrection, and she's quoting a report from KGW8 TV in Portland. And they talk about the Standard Insurance Center. I've never been to Portland, and by the looks of it, I'm never going. Um, so Standard Insurance Center, uh, their community relations senior director named Bob Speltz, he told the TV station that our downtown properties have sustained significant vandalism and a number of employees and contractors have been assaulted in recent months. So they sent everybody home. And now, obviously, you've got a lot of people that have been working from home because of covid but you know all of these buildings they they do have some people that have to come in there are certain jobs that they need to be at the building for and those people now they sent them home too the protests combined with the pandemic was found to have caused according to the portland business alliance survey that they sent out so protests and pandemic have caused several million dollars in either damage or lost revenue. One of the responding businesses to this survey reported losses of more than $20 million alone. The company was not named in these findings. However, the staggering number is said to still be growing. Quote, the financial consequences to the downtown corridor are a running calculation that is almost impossible to wrap your mind around. The financial impacts of physical damage is one thing, and that continues to increase. 
according to the uh, CEO and president of the Portland Business Alliance, a guy named Andrew Hohen. Um, he said, quote, then you've got the ongoing loss of revenue to the business community who cannot operate their places of business. Uh, that is also a number that's continuing to rise. The whole situation is likely to get worse since the riots now have leaked into residential neighborhoods. In Asheville, they are looking to change a bunch of names of streets because that's going to solve all of the racism. As part of a national and local soul-searching over treatment of black residents, according to Joel Burgess, the Democratic activist with a byline at the Citizen Times, um, the city is looking at recommendations to remove the names of slave owners and others associated with discrimination from some major streets and at least one park. Names flagged for potential renaming by city staff are Woodfin Street, Woodfin Place, McDowell Street, Patton Avenue, Baird Street, Merriman Avenue, and Davidson Drive, according to information provided by the city to the Citizen Times. Staff also raised the possibility of renaming Charlotte Street. <laughs> I guess because Queen Charlotte. By the way, you know what's not listed here, which I think is kind of kind of odd? Asheville. Yeah. Yeah, the whole <laughs> the whole city name. Why are we still calling ourselves Asheville? Don't you think we should rename the city first? Before you start picking on the streets, how about rename the whole city? Like that would be like you really want to show how much you hate racists from 100, 200 years ago. Like this is the way to do it. You take that name off of everything. We are no longer Asheville. We should start a, what is that website? Change.org, right? Start a petition to change the name of Asheville. Yeah, because the that's who it's named after, Governor Samuel Ash, right? Owned slaves. The tennis player, Arthur Ash, his descendant, or he is descended from slaves owned by Governor Sam Ash. That the city's named after. By the way, our whole state is named after King Charles. The first, I believe, maybe the second. The guy, though, who was in charge, uh, who allowed and, like, signed off on the transatlantic slave trade. Yeah, we're not named after somebody named Caroline. It's, no, it's Carolus. It's where it is Latin or something, and they named... Anyway, like, yeah, the whole state. we got to rename the whole state. If you're going to, like, you're going to rename Charlotte Street? You're going to rename McDowell Street? Patton Avenue? Do you know how many businesses are on Patton Avenue? Then they're now going to have to change all of their information. They're going to have to file uh, uh, amendments to all of their articles of incorporation with the state, right? The amount of time and effort required to make these changes. Who pays for this? The businesses do? Yeah, because it's not really tough for businesses right now, right? Things are going great. Economy's roaring right now. Oh, it's fantastic to be a business owner during a viral pandemic. <laughs> Let's throw some more uh, additional costs on them. Yeah, I mean, they can handle it, right? They're rich business owners. Protests in Asheville uh, by the group Black Asheville Demands calls for streets named after former slave owners to be replaced with names of historic local black leaders. This is why I've always said, I am okay when it comes to like the statues. I'm okay with more statues. Put up more, you know, uh, tributes and honors to people that you want to celebrate instead of the constant tearing down of other things. Add more to it. Add more. 
City Manager Deborah Campbell asked the Asheville and Buncombe County African American Heritage Commission to recommend the removal and replacement of names. Um, Julie Mayfield, City Councilwoman, asked about potential renaming of parks, including the popular triangular Pritchard Park <laughs> at the convergence of Patton, well, that's going to change too, College Street and Haywood Street. Don't know if any of those names are okay. The city is now waiting for a report on the commission's progress on potential name changes. Now, one pitfall, very the second to last paragraph, one pitfall could be the difficulty for businesses that would have to change signs and other materials. All right, that's that's the only mention of any negative right here. No examination by Joel Burgess, the Democrat with the uh, byline. No examination or mention, really, of, like, what does that cost look like? He just calls it, one pitfall could be the difficulty for businesses that would have to change their signs and other materials. Yeah, like, that's going to cost millions of dollars. Millions of dollars for these businesses. And, And, by the way, and GovCo as well. I think Woodfin Street has a lot of government buildings on it, if I remember correctly. So I mentioned him a little bit earlier. John Hood, he is the chairman of the John Locke Foundation. He wrote an op-ed called Marxism Remains a Dangerous Idea. He calls it one of the most catastrophic ideas in history. Tyrants and butchers inspired by the noxious notions of Karl Marx, including such successors as Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, they're responsible for the deaths of more than 100 million of our fellow human beings, as well as the enslavement and immiseration of many hundreds of millions more. So yes, I had to go look up immiseration, and it means economic impoverishment, immiseration. I'm going to use that word too. I learned two new words today. So why do we allow such a dangerous idea to be taught? In this age of historical revisionism, social unrest, and cancel culture, shouldn't we seek to cancel Marxism itself? Yes, I can get on board with that cancel culture. (laughs) There are professors right here in North Carolina who openly champion Marxist ideas in the classroom and publish research in explicitly Marxist journals. Young and not-so-young North Carolinians continue to join Marxist organizations to distribute propaganda and stage publicity stunts. And, as a recent Civitas Institute analysis and other reporting has revealed, Marxist activists have, over the past four years, helped to instigate riots in Charlotte, Durham, Raleigh, and other North Carolina cities. Tragically, among those results have been injuries, extensive property damage, and significant disruption of our urban economies and communities. This is, I've mentioned this before, and I'm going to keep saying it, all of the work that has been done over the last 30 to 40 years to bring people back into downtown districts is all up in smoke now. Congratulations. All of you environmentalists who were like, infill projects, stop suburban sprawl, you lost because of your own side you lost because you allowed the monsters among you to run wild and now no one's going to want to go back to those downtown areas i won't marxism is to be sure far from the only noxious idea currently competing during these tumultuous times for the attention and allegiance of the alienated the aggrieved and the gullible some alt-right provocateurs for instance peddle european style blood and soil nationalism racism and other forms of bigotry but while most of us regardless of party or ideology he says condemn such activists and seek to have nothing to do with them 
The same cannot be said for those who continue to espouse Marxism, despite its manifest flaws, deliberate falsehoods, and horrendous real-world consequences. Now look, he says, under no circumstance should any government try to police the expression of ideas, even ones that are as bad as Marxism, okay? Um, at the same time, when private individuals go beyond just expressing their views and attempt to use force to silence other people by engaging in trespass or vandalism, physical obstruction, or worse, they're no longer playing by the rules of a free society. They're trying to overturn them. Consider the example of the Southern Vision Alliance. We mentioned them the other day. This uh, is, is, this is uh, the funders of this new left-wing coalition in the state of North Carolina with, uh, with deep pockets, funding from, quote-unquote, reputable uh, liberal progressive uh, organizations, but also signed on to their coalition are organizations like the NCAE. And they said, the SVA said, we reject the right of the state to decide what is and is not legitimate protest. Well, he says that's one of government's critical and limited responsibilities, though. That's right to protect lives, liberty, and property of its citizens. Of course, private individuals do not enjoy the right to decide whether threatening lives, liberty, and property is a legitimate form of protest. To do so, he says, is an act of revolution. And I agree, because that's what we're seeing. He said, cancel culture tactics, gratuitous insults, stalking and harassing those with whom you disagree, trying to get them fired, even when legal. Such behavior is not consistent with building and preserving a culture of free expression and mutual respect. I agree, but they, that's not what the left is interested in now. That's not the point anymore. And here's the other thing, too. It doesn't even address the problematic ideas themselves that they say they're fighting against. It doesn't effectively combat them. Therefore, we should rebut Marxists, not try to cancel them, as long as they obey the very same rule of law that protects their own freedom to espouse nonsense. But here's the question. What if they don't? That's a wrap for this episode. Appreciate you listening. Thanks so much for the support, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.